Well, it's cold and snowy outside in Evanston, but the lacrosse season is heating up here at Northwestern University. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode one of the 2017 Northwestern Lacrosse Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hackett. Very excited to be joined by Amit Malik and Parker Johnson in this episode one of the yet-to-be-titled Northwestern Lacrosse Podcast. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy some lacrosse talk. Welcome, guys. Thanks so much for being here. Let's kick things off with some overall impressions of the team so far this year. They're three and four through seven games, started the year preseason ranked number nine, have slipped to number 13 in the polls this year, up one spot from last week, according to the coaches' poll. Uh, is this team meeting your expectations so far through the year? This is a dynamic program. Everybody knows that, that this is a historically successful program, one of the best teams, probably the best team uh, on Northwestern's campus historically. Um, so is this team meeting expectations? Um, it's tough to say. They've had a really hard schedule so far. They've played some really talented ranked opponents. Beating Notre Dame in the second game of the season was really impressive. But then when you go and look at their losses, I mean, the one to Syracuse, the one to Stony Brook, not great. Syracuse low scoring game. It's 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 tough. I don't know. I think the only one you look back and say at the time you really wish they had beaten Colorado in overtime. But as we'll talk about later, Colorado has turned out to actually be a pretty solid team. So all of their losses are two now ranked teams. But that being said, this is a program that should be able to beat some ranked teams. And I think that you know they maybe should have two or more two more wins. Maybe four four and three, five and two would be a little more acceptable. But that being said, it's early in the season. It's non-conference play. You got some stuff to work out. I'd say it's slightly lower than what we expected, but that's not a bad thing, especially given it's early in the season. The team struggled at times last year, especially against ranked opponents. We were at times thinking, well, this is a team that they could beat, and that team was perhaps better than uh, expected. We've seen that across uh, occasionally this year as well. Parker, there's been really one player on offense who has really stood out to pretty much everybody. We knew she was good from last year, third on the team in points, but this year she's taken it up. It even uh, seems to have taken that additional step and has really become the best scorer on this team. Yeah, Christina Esposito is really just running the offense this season. She got 17 goals in the six games so far um, that she has played, which is fantastic. And 18 points does have the one assist as well. Leads the team in shots, also creating a lot of turnovers at that attacking position as well. Um, she's really just excelled the season so far as the lead attacker for Northwestern. And there was a lot of turnover on the roster on the defensive side last year with a lot of seniors graduating, but there was one struggle between the pipes and Mallory Weiss. Yeah, absolutely. And, and especially she's definitely been picking up momentum recently having over 10 saves in her last three games, which is very good improvement um, from the beginning of the season. Her save percentage right now is sitting at about 48%, which is pretty good. Um, under 10 goals allowed per game. She's really, really confident back there. Um, definitely improving as the season's gone on and, and, and also a good leader for this team. And, and I think she really sets the tone as that sort of last line of defense. This is the first podcast of the season, so let's catch all of you listeners up really quick on some of the games that you've missed. As we mentioned, seven games already this year, three and four record for Northwestern. They started off the year. Got the party started, two games, two wins. One again, one at home against Kinesius, and then one on the road against a top 10 foe in Notre Dame. Both wins to open the season, including a 14 to 13 win over Notre Dame when Northwestern was ranked ninth, and Notre Dame was ranked eighth. Uh, 
this was quite a while ago, but uh, let's do some quick takeaways from both of the, from either one of those games. They got it started with Kinesius, probably expected a little bit bigger of a win if we're being honest, but still not a bad result to open the year. Yeah, that was way back in January last, no, one of the last days of January at home. They actually played the game outside at Lanny and Sharon Martin Stadium. It was extremely cold. Uh, not a fun game to play in, I'm sure, uh, other than the win for the Wildcats. And yeah, they, they probably should have beat Kinesius by more goals, but early season rust, fine. And what I thought was really impressive was they beat Notre Dame 14-13. to Four goals from Selena Lasota. Megan Kinnon and Christina Esposito had three. You know, that's you can't ask for more than that your second game of the season to win a, a ranked match against a team ranked higher than you. So, really impressive work from the Wildcats there. It's pretty much a dream start to the season, I'd say. And as defeating Notre Dame, which was a team that knocked them out last year in the NCAA tournament, obviously huge win, um, not only in the standings as they were number eight at the time, um, huge win in terms of performance, but also just huge win mentally to get over that sort of from last season and, and keep continuing to grow as a program and, and defeat the team that knocked them out last year, I'm sure was a huge win for those girls. Yeah, Kelly Montiela pretty much said as much. The head coach kind of confirmed that there's a little bit of a revenge factor going on. She definitely doesn't play up stuff like that too much, but definitely hinted that that might have been a little bit of a factor for them. Yeah, and I mean, the win is a win, but one thing that we, we noticed from that game was a little bit of inconsistency from the Wildcats. They won in a 6-0 run, at one point had a 9-4 lead, and they gave up five straight goals in six minutes right before halftime. They ended up taking a 10-9 lead. Things slowed down a lot in the second half, but they always say lacrosse is a game of runs. You've heard that. You hear that about other sports, but it's especially true in lacrosse, especially with the if you can keep the ball in the draw control, you can keep scoring. And, you know, if you're a good team, you, you can't let up six goals, five goals in six minutes. It's, it's something they, they got to improve on. And we saw that later, you know, that ended up hurting them in some other games. But that being said, they, they managed to pull it out at the end. So congrats to them for that ranked win earlier. After Notre Dame, they went west. Young women went west. And uh, two games, two, two identical score lines, two losses to teams in USC and Colorado. But perhaps two different feelings after, as the result, after those results. Both losses, 11 to 10, uh, Colorado first and then USC. I got that order screwed up, my apologies. But, again, maybe two different kind of mindsets going after that. At least that's how I felt because we knew that USC was really good. They're ranked number four in the country. They're consistently in the top five. Uh, but Colorado was not ranked, was expected, you know, third or so in the conference. Um but they appear to be a lot better than originally expected. They shot into the rankings just by virtue of beating Northwestern, and now they're seventh, uh, ranked seventh in the country. They're undefeated at 7-0. and They've beaten some really solid teams, including Northwestern, over the year. Uh, so do these facts kind of temper those two losses at all? You know, you look at two, more, two consecutive losses, both in overtime, but, you know, kind of can we kind of understand kind of how those results came about? Yeah, if you're looking back at it, it's a it's an overtime loss, two overtime losses, but starting with Colorado to a team that, as you said, is now number seven in the country. Now, that being said, they're number seven partially because they beat Northwestern, but that game was really tough. They were they were uh, a woman down in overtime. They actually won the opening draw control but turned it over and then lost. It's also really tough to play on the road in Colorado 
little bit of an altitude thing. You know, I'm sure the team would say it didn't affect them at all, and maybe it did, it didn't. But it, it's just tough to play on the road at Colorado. They're pretty good there, and they had a good game, but at the time they probably thought they could have beaten them by a lot more. So that's what I see in that a little bit more frustrating of a loss. That being said, the loss against USC is a good – it's a loss you feel good about because USC is so good, you know, fourth in the country. They have such a good defense too. And, you know, just losing by one in overtime reminds me a lot of that game last year against North Carolina, kind of. But I, it's it's tough, you know. Two overtime one-goal games, you wish you could have it back, and then the season looking a lot better. We're sitting here like, wow, what a season the Wildcats have had so far. But that's the fine margins that, you know, the lacrosse national picture is in right now. So you can't feel too bad about it. It's just kind of like a little wistful thinking, like, what what if? One bounce one way or the other and things change, right? Kind of goes that way in a lot of different sports. Yeah, I mean, certainly certainly you get caught sort of in mixed feelings, like Amit really said, in terms of you can't feel horrible about the losses, but at the same time it's sort of a what if of, you know, both those games went to overtime, definitely could have been won, and and you didn't pull them out. However, I would say that overall, realistically, the team isn't going to be judged on their record at the end of the season. I mean, there's definitely an expectation that's been built by the greatness of this program that Northwestern is looking to contend for a national championship every single year. And in the end, these are the types of games that can definitely help them in the future if they take the right lessons from them and if, you know, they, they find what they may have not done right in those situations and grow from being able to play a close game against a very good team. So I think in the end, as long as they can take good lessons from these games, continue to grow, um, you know, we may not have seen that in the next two games after these two games that we're talking about in Colorado and USC, but either way, getting those that experience early in the season is always going to be valuable later, and you can't really underestimate that. Yeah, and going back to the Colorado game, just pulling up the box score, I forgot this at the time, but one of the reasons why this game was so frustrating is they were 4 of 18 from free position shots, and I'm sure head coach Kelly Amani-Hiller would tell you right now that that's unacceptable for her team to shoot such a low percentage on a shot you 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 want to be close to you want to make every one you think you can if you're if you're a player but should be closer to 50 percent and they're uh the goalie for colorado Paige Son- sonkson butchering that name apologies oh, right. she had 19 yeah. saves in that game which is an unworldly amount so that that tells me that the wildcats they outshot them 39 to 25 Against the team, okay, they're ranked 7th now, but at the time was thought to be inferior to the Wildcats. The Wildcats outshot them, had 18 free position shots. Then you look at that 11% scoreline, you're like, wow, a lot of missed opportunities. And looking back, that's going to be one of the more frustrating losses of the season. That being said, the USC game, different story, but that's a game you really just want to have back at this point. That was just a close game overall, USC. I felt like it could have gone either yeah. way. But that Colorado game, like you said, Paige Sungsing played out of her mind. She was easily the storyline for me in that game. And as you and as we've hinted at, you know, one or two shots, more, one or two more shots get by her. Obviously, the scoreline is different. Yeah, and I pulled up the USC box score, and what do you know? A little similar. USC's goalie made seventeen yeah. saves. She makes we, a lot of saves. They out. Uh, they. She is one of the best goalies in the nation. That's why she. You know, she's able to do that. But Northwestern outshot them by seven. Six more shots on goal. Turnovers were about even. So, you know, I, I don't I don't really know what to make of it. Like you said, I think it was more of a 50-50 game. It's tough that they lost in overtime. But 
that's a game you can look back on and say, well, we were in it, it happens. You can't say that about Colorado. Well, see, to me, I think it's interesting that you bring up the point of the goalies making saves and stuff because to me at that point it almost becomes more of a mental battle because you know you're facing one of the best goalkeepers in the country. Um, you know in terms of the Colorado game that, that she's making a bunch of saves and you're seeing that, especially from those free position shots. Like, Then it becomes a mindset of you just have to continue to shoot, you have to continue to attack, you have to continue to say, you know, I don't care who's in the goal right now, I still need to aim for the same places, I still need to you know, get it in where I, where I know I can. And, and it's just a... It's really just a mentality at that point of not letting, you know, the confidence of that goalie that's back there stop you from playing the way you, you want to play. And, and a lot of that really just comes down to mindset, I think. You know, what's interesting <coughs> is that after those two games against two goaltenders that played out of their minds and one in Gussie Johns at USC in particular who has already established herself as one of the best goalkeepers in the country, when the Wildcats then the next weekend headed out to Long Island, or in a couple weekends from there, I should say, it was kind of a different story because those two teams that they play the next weekend on Long Island had really great defenses and didn't afford the Wildcats a lot of chances to get shots on goal. And when they did, the goalkeepers were generally there. But the keepers played well, I thought, but it was generally the help defense and then the transition midfield that carried uh, the two Wildcat opponents, less so than the goaltenders that we saw on their West Coast road trip. Yeah, we're talking about the Syracuse game, 5-3. Real low scoreline for college women's lacrosse. It's a baseball scoreline. Yeah, maybe a, a hockey scoreline. That's score a baseball scoreline. Northwestern actually outshot by eight. Um, Mallory Weiss had 13 saves. She was the goalie standing her head. Actually kept Northwestern in the game. Was, totally agree. was really good. But, you know, I think the Wildcats were actually just outplayed here. And as you mentioned, their transition defense against Syracuse was exploited. And in such a low-scoring game when every possession matters, you know, I don't know. The transition defense is a tough thing. You can't give up any open looks. I didn't I didn't watch this game, and I, I wish I did. But looking at the stats, it, you know, the stats show they were they were kind of outplayed by Syracuse. And it's tough to break down a, def- a really defensive-oriented team, especially when Selena Lasota did not play in this game. And she's, their, you know, supposed to be their most talented offensive player. And you look at this, Christina Esposito had three shots this entire game. I mean, I should, I should go look this up right now, what she's averaging. But well, she's got 40 shots on the season, so across six games. You yeah, know, that's they, eight, exactly. Uh, eight or so, she's, seven. She's, she's going eight or so, and when she's on more, you know, when the offense is going through her, she gets, she's around 10, too. You know, it's a good performance for her. When she's got three shots... The entire game, she scored two of them. By the way, exactly. Which is, yeah. But it shows that, like, you know, Syracuse is probably double teaming here, especially if they see Selena Lasota's not on the field. Why not? And this is a theme we're going to get to for the Wildcats: is that as long as Selena Soda's not playing, it's going to be a lot of pressure on the rest of the attackers, especially Christina Esposito, to step up. I got a little ahead of myself, but yes, last week, last two games for Northwestern, both losses to teams on Long Island. First to Syracuse, who are a top 10 team, have frequently been a top 10 team. They have a great head coach in Gary Gate, very successful program. It's interesting how both the Syracuse men's program and women's programs are nearly equally historically successful. We'll get That's probably unfair to the men's team. But uh, they're both great programs is all I have to say. Perhaps we'll discuss that more as the season rolls on. But... Uh, a 5-3 five, a five to three loss to Syracuse. I couldn't find a lower-scoring game 
in Northwestern history, at least since the program was resurrected in 2002. Uh, the, I found a five to sco- five to four score line a couple of years back, but nothing uh, closer to eight combined goals. A pretty ridiculous output. Um, but it just goes to show you the strength of the defense of both teams. I feel more than the inability of the offense because both of those teams have both of the teams have excellent offensive capabilities, which we've seen at other times. But uh, and then after the loss to Syracuse, it was a thirteen to five loss to Stony Brook. Easily, as we've hinted at, the most lopsided outcome so far of the year on the losing side for Northwestern where they really struggled in the midfield and in the transition game and they struggled to keep the ball out of the net once Stony Brook got rolling. A lot less to like about these two losses than in the two losses in overtime the previous set to USC and Colorado. Um, Eight goals combined in those two losses after 20 combined in the two losses before. Do these First off, do these offensive struggles reinforce that Selena Lasota is the true catalyst, one could say the wild catalyst, of the Northwestern offense? Well, when you're the team's most talented offensive player, you you are the catalyst, and that's no knock on Cassino Esposito. Cassino Esposito is a great offensive player. I don't want to say it's like it's not that she can't create. It's just that having two really good offensive players on the field at the same time stretches a defense more, gives you more opportunities. When it's just one, you know, I think Selena Soda, you know, we don't know what it would be like, but if it was just her without Christina Esposito, it'd be similar. She'd be seeing double, triple teams like what Christina probably saw these two games. And it just shows that the Wildcats are one less option, have one less option to work with on offense. And it's really tough because they're keeping Christina away from the net. They're sending two, three bodies at her, especially when she tries to get into you know a shooting space get a good lane I don't know if that's the right term a good lane on on net and she's just not seeing it she took eight shots against Stony Brook scored one you know it means she's not getting a lot of good shots because her conversion rate's a little higher than that normally and they the thing about Northwestern that's really frustrating in this Stony Brook game is they turned it over 24 times that that'll do you in any game no matter who you're playing especially against one of the best defensive teams in the country and, you know, this is these are two teams that I think both are helped by the shot clock. You know, in theory, the shot clock leads to higher scoring, but it also helps teams that can play compact defense for just 90 seconds and get a turnover on, on that in that sense. And Stony Brook, you know, I don't know if they still play this way, but they do this really deep-set, packed defensive zone. Is that, is that still correct? I think so, yeah. Do they still play that, that deep zone? And basically, when that happens, it's really hard to score. It's it's always a low-scoring game when you play Stony Brook, and I'm not surprised Northwestern only scored five goals. <laughs> the thing is, it would have been one thing if they lost 5-8, five, 5-6. Five, Maybe they could have scored 7 or 8. I don't know. They gave up 13 right. in a game that's a blowout like that, and that, to me, shows the defense has a lot to work to do. It's, it's tough to evaluate this team when they've only played ranked teams so far and Canisius. Now we have Marquette. But still going forward, once they, you know, get to the back end of the season, I don't know what they're what they're gonna look like yet. This was it was kind of a developing story all through last year as well. They said they beat Duke in the first game of the year, I believe. Then they played three more ranked teams in a row, including Louisville, lost all three, they have Syracuse in that stretch as well, lost all three, then won one or two games against ranked teams, got into the Big Ten, beat up on inferior teams like Michigan, lost some more to some ranked teams like UNC, 
played Stony Brook, beat them. You know, very much a game by game thing last year. I don't expect a whole lot different from that than that this year. I think, as you were saying, Parker, that hinted at the turnovers being an issue. This is something I think you can extend to a lot of other sports. You know, uh, Stony Brook forced a lot of turnovers, but Northwestern created a lot of turnovers by themselves, just trying to get something going on offense. You know, they were trying to bring in some extra attack and then, you know, just mishandle the ball or whatever. Ball went on the ground, Stony Brook picked it up, or more often, they put a shot on net and missed the net, or uh, the Stony Brook goaltender made a save. She had a pretty good performance, but then after that, it was just one quick outlet pass, and then the Seawolves were back out the other way, and they had an outnumbered rush going the other way. I feel like you, you see that a lot uh, in basketball and soccer, maybe hockey and stuff like that. If you just can't get a flow going on offense, then you try to do too much to get something going, and you, t- and you end up turning the ball over and leading to more opportunities for the other team. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, points off turnovers isn't a stat we have access to um, for this lacrosse team, but one thing we do have access to is just simple turnover numbers on the season. And Northwestern overall is minus two in turnovers on the season. They've turned the ball over 103 times. Their opponents have only turned it over 101 times. So, I mean, just simply looking at that, as a team that is perennially a top 10 contender in Northwestern, you want that turnover margin to certainly be in the positive and not even be particularly close. Um, So yeah, definitely, anytime you're turning the ball over, it can easily lead to points for the other team. And then also, I think you see some of those turnovers because as Mint was mentioning, when you only have one offensive threat on the field, and you have to bring in other, other people to try to sort of get the offense going, like it clearly, for one, helps the defense key in on Esposito, the one offensive threat that you can see, and then also can put inexperienced people in positions they're not used to trying to create, where Lasota might be able to, you know, do some things that they just can't, and and hold on to the ball better, handle the ball better. So that's I think that's also a symptom of of Lasota not playing in those games is just again just being a little more loose with the ball, and it's certainly affected, you know, Northwestern. And then the last thing I'll say about that also is that. If you only score five goals, sometimes it can be hard on defense. You, This is one that you see in football a lot where if you just can't get your defense off the field, they're going to get worn down, and they're going to get – so, you know, if you're turning the ball over every time, if you're not scoring a lot of goals and holding on to possession, making runs, as Amid mentioned earlier as well, if you're always playing defense the whole time, the whole time, the pressure is just going to keep building, and eventually that's going to crack. And without some relief from a good offensive performance, that can be really hard on those defenders. Yeah. I want to bring up a, a few points more stats. The double whammy is that Northwestern led draw controls against Stony Brook 15-5. to five. Mm. Really impressive, actually. Shelby Fredericks, great oh, game, really in the, game in the draw circle. But when you have a plus 10 advantage in draw controls, but then a um, you know, minus 9 advantage in turnovers, well then that basically is moot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, all that good work is wasted. And I think what your point is, is really important, Parker, that without Selena, it's really hard and we can look at this right now. The, the offensive construct of this roster without Selena, it's not great in terms of taking care of the ball. Danita Stroop is a great offensive weapon, and Shelby Fredericks is actually gets a lot of assists. She's a really good secondary playmaker. But then you look at that, Danita Stroop's not going to be expected to you know create an offense, set up an offense. She's going to catch and shoot. Then you've got Leighton Enor, who is a – an offensive weapon who's tall and another catch and shoot. I don't mean like basketball, but like she's gonna post up in the middle in front of the goal 
catch it, turn around, and score. Like a big number nine in soccer, you might Precisely. Yeah. They, cro- they cross in front of the net and try yeah. to get feeds from a and player. A little, like, yeah, she's like kind of like a, a big in basketball that sure. stays near the net on their pick and roll, which they run a variance of pick and roll type actions. They got called for an illegal pick against <laughs> Marquette, which I thought was hilarious. Anyways, they've also got Liza Elder, a freshman, who's just getting her feet wet. They've got Megan Kinna, who's turned out to be really good you know, can score, but she's a freshman, and part of the turnovers, you're inexperienced, you're not used to quarterback on offense. The other player that sees the ball a lot is Katie and Grilly, you know, and she has some experience actually doing the Christina Esposito role. She can play behind the net. She can do it from the top, but there's just a drop-off between Katie and Selena, and Katie's had a fine season in her own right. She's actually scored a decent number of goals. Yeah, but surprised the, I haven't mentioned her yet, to be honest. But the problem is, like, if you can double or triple team Christina Esposito and you still have an extra body left, you know, you got two on, um, man, who was I just talking about? Really? On Katie and Grilly, then you're in trouble. Then you're really in trouble on offense. And when the rest of your players are more of spot-up threats, I hate using basketball terms, and the Nestle Bushes are two-way players, you know, that's a lot of pressure on them to start getting the offense when everyone else is getting doubled, tripled, and just seeing a lot of bodies. So against teams that really bunker in defensively, two of which we saw, it, it was a really tough tough task for the Wildcats. Now, look what happens when they play a team that's a little more loose defensively, the Marquette game. Let's talk about this. Everything was going right for the Wildcats in offense. They scored 18 goals. What happened? It's quite a bit different output, isn't it? Literally, everybody got involved as well. Uh, it starts and ends with Christina Esposito, doesn't it? As we've mentioned, and that's kind of how the offense has been lately. She had herself a career game. And I don't know if this was part of the plan by the coach of Marquette or this was just how it was. I did not see a lot of double teams from the Marquette defense, and I have to think that that was a mistake. If you've read the scouting report... Every team so this far that's tried to beat Northwestern has done it. Kinesi's double team Selena. When you've only got one of those two on the field, why aren't they doubling Christina Esposito? She had six goals and frankly made the Golden Eagles defense look a little silly. With two of those goals, one was really far out, and another one she weaved through like five or six defenders. So it starts there. Yeah. I mean good news is that we know Christina Spino is really good. When she, when you don't double her, she's going to hurt you. And that's not just a Marquette thing. Any team that doesn't double her is going to pay the price. But that being said, the rest of the team really played really well. Dennis Drew, three goals. Shelby Fredericks, what, four assists? Uh, three or four, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's good to see. I was really impressed. Uh, the offense looked really good. Four, sorry. Should have known that one. Yeah, then a bunch of other people got involved as well, like players that we didn't expect to see necessarily. I was wondering, you know, if we would see some, you know, tertiary players come in and play some offense if the game got out of hand. But even before it was, you know, officially out of hand, you saw some people that don't play a whole lot on offense get in and play some minutes and score some goals. Megan Duffy made her second career appearance as a freshman, scored her first career goal. Liza Elder made, I think, her ninth or tenth career appearance as a sophomore, scored her first career goal. That was a funky play, by the way. You should check that out if you can. Um, and then, uh, you know, like Sheila Nestlebush got involved with her second goal of the season. Megan Kinna, as we mentioned, is having herself a pretty solid year in midfield as a freshman, scored her for fourth goal of the season. 
just a really solid performance overall offensively. And I think and I was trying to get Coach Hiller to say this um, earlier in the week. Uh, she was non-committal on this, and I can't blame her for it. But you know, I, I feel like a win like this, a convincing win, an eight-goal win in which you score 18 goals, twice what you scored in the last two goals, two games combined, it has to do quite a bit for a team's confidence, right? You know, you know you're struggling on offense. You can't get any sustained pressure. The only time you can score is on a free position, so on a set play where you're designed to be able to have an easier time of scoring. If you are able to finally break the snap the schneid as it were and get some positive momentum going again that has to do something well for the teams like mentality right of course yeah you see you can talk about this you see the ball go in yeah i mean that's the i think that's the simplest thing yeah once the offense starts flowing it's it's a clear confidence booster for not only you but for the rest of the team as we saw i mean even you know esposito obviously leads the way with six goals in that game but then other players are saying yeah let me get in on it too let me you know, we, we can see this keep happening. We're not seeing what we saw in the Colorado and the USC game where we do our best and, and just the efforts keep being blocked, keep being blocked. You know, you see that ball go in, definitely releases the floodgates. But I think part of the biggest storyline, at least for me in that game, is they hadn't played a home game since January 30th. And it's to a get tough non-con schedule. Whole, yeah, very, very tough non-conference schedule. Having to travel very far distance with those as well. Um, you know, obviously going out to the West Coast, then returning back to Evanston and then flying over to Long Island, you know, literally going across the, all the way across the country, you can't, you know, you can't sleep on the fact that you know, staying in hotels and, and being on the planes and all these different things, they, they wear you down after a long road trip. Um, obviously, you know, they're not playing every single weekend or everything, but they, that definitely wears you down. And I think it's, it was really big for them to get just back at home. And, and I saw an interview with uh, Fredericks after the game, and she was talking about how even just something as simple as just little traditions with the team before the game, that even makes a big difference. Um, you know, them just just kind of getting ready for the game as a team, just where, where the in the place they call home. Um, and and I think you just you, you can't overstate the importance of that. Either. Yeah, yeah. And the effort was really there on, on the ones that that really stands out to me. Northwestern won ground balls thirty-one to thirteen. Wow. wow. Over Marquette, I did not notice this during the game, but that tells me you know. A ground ball is a 50-50 ball. And, like, that's just a lot of hustle, a lot of effort. And it's kind of like a determination thing. Hey, like, we, we've had a rough stretch. Let's control what we can, like, control and try to win every single 50-50 ball. And that, you know, Marquette, maybe they're not the greatest team. And they're surely, you know, compared to the opposition Northwestern has seen this season, not as good as those teams. But when you're hustling... It means you, you're. If they bring that to the next games, they're gonna have a great chance. That's just really impressive to almost win ground balls by twenty. It's real hard to do, especially when they were the draw controls. They were actually outdrawn by Marquette. That's what I was gonna say. Sixteen to fourteen, which is really odd. I don't know what it was. Watching the game, there was a lot of false starts. I think on Shelby Fredericks, which was frustrating to see. But you know, if you something's not going right, win every win every ground ball. That's it was great to see. Yeah, and that's Good for a team that, that on the season is winning about two-thirds of the draws. Um, and then, yeah, to be outdrawn is, was, was definitely a surprising stat. But like you said, outworked with in terms of winning, winning those ground balls back. Yeah, and one thing, you know, this isn't really troubling, but just to bring up is that Marquette's most talented offensive player, Juliana Shearer, she also scored six goals. Yeah. Northwestern did not double her. Agreed. I, as watching the game, you know, they, they prefer to have – 
I think it was Claire Quinn or Allie Muir face guard uh, a play, a, a talented player, which has worked for them in the past worked as a against strategy. Them as well. It's also worked against them. They know they've seen it. They use it. It's it's goes both ways. You know, maybe this is a, a uh, I mean, it's Marquette. They probably thought that the other players on Marquette couldn't hurt them enough, and they were right. But it'll be interesting to see in the future whether or not they see a talented offensive player and double them if they can. Sure. Allie Mueller was used at times as a face guarder in the few games that she played down the stretch last <coughs> year to take away or attempt to take away one of the best offensive weapons on a team. And I was, As I was hinting at, Selena Lasota <laughs> was often taken away by one defender last year just completely in, with that you just it's like a chess match right you just sacrifice one of your pieces to take away one of their pieces it's not a perfect analogy i understand but you know then you have six on six right and a lot more space for both the offense and defense to work with let's take a quick break a little interlude here before we uh preview uh the next game on tap uh this is my effort to come up with something fun like will greer's had in the past on his podcast in, in the last uh wnur year um, in honor of my buddy Doc Emmerich, who is the lead announcer for NBC for their uh, hockey coverage, and pretty much every game that he does, he goes through a list of people uh, relevant to the sport of hockey, mostly that have uh, that birthday. So you know, you might hear a bunch of random players, some management, whatever coaches. Uh, so in honor of that, here's a couple of people from the five major sports. Uh, couldn't find any lacrosse players, unfortunately. Um, uh, that were born on this day, March 13th. Not today, obviously, but sometime in history. And, uh, and we'll just kind of bandy these names about, and we'll all pick a favorite, I guess, right? All right, let's get it started. So I know both of you guys, big soccer fans, yes. uh, and I can appreciate that. So let's start off with a couple of random soccer players. Born on March 13th, born with defender Tyrone Mings. Okay, <laughs> all right. Former Everton and now AC Milan forward Gerard Daliafeo. Oh, nice. Uh, I He's think good. I screwed that up. Um, Delafeo. Um, I practiced that before we went on, and I still screwed it up. You're fine. Um, Tough names. American football, Buffalo Bills defensive lineman Marcel Darius, oh. Dolphins linebacker Jelani Jenkins, and former NFL quarterback and current NFL analyst Trent Dilfer. Oh. Um, <laughs> the ultimate. I already have my two favorites. <laughs> I already have my two favorites. Former MLB pitcher Johan Santana. Wow. And journeyman infielder Mike Avilas played for the Tigers last year. Played for Cleveland for a few years, I think. Um, now, you know, speaking of people you don't know, uh, former NHL forward and current Bruin studio analyst Barry Peterson scored over 650 career points in a couple of great years with Boston in the 80s. Uh, Tampa Bay Lightning rookie D-man Braden Point. Um, Columbus youngster. Dude, how many of these you got? Just man. like 12. All right, all right, all right. Columbus youngster Dalton Prout. Uh, veteran small forward shooting guard Karan Butler. Yeah. Two-time all-star with the Washington nice. Wizards back yeah, in the was. earlier 2000s. He's got some real fun stories from his time with the Washington Wizards. Has he really? Well, he was there for the – he, he wrote a book about his time. Really? I mean, he, he's a totally, like, normal, good NBA player. But he was there for the Javaris Crittenden Gilbert Arenas action. Aha! Uh -huh. Yeah, my, one of my favorite. We might things. have digressed too far. I, <laughs> I don't want to talk about that incident on this lacrosse. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I'd rather not talk about Gilbert Arenas at any time, to be honest. With you. <laughs> Last person, Cavs forward Tristan Thompson. Lovely. 
interesting. So a lot of different types of guys. Again, couldn't find any lacrosse players, unfortunately. Uh, I'm going to go with Trent Dilfer is my favorite because now we can always say, hey, man, you don't need a great quarterback. Yeah, yeah that's exactly what I was The saying. Ravens once won a Super exactly Bowl with Trent Dilfer. Ah! <laughs> Every talking head ever around October when Eli Manning starts doing bad things. Ooh, <laughs> Giants shade from Malik. Or not even Eli. People say the Giants want a quarterback Eli. It's more like... The Bears, can they win a Super Bowl with Rex Grossman? Well, the Ravens wants to with Trent Dilfer. You only have to be that good for six weeks to win a Super Bowl. That's enough. Can the Bears win a Super Bowl with Mike Glennon? Can they win six games with Mike Glennon? We'll see about that one. Got any picks, Park? Uh, You know, Tim, I'm impressed that you found a birthday of a baseball player that I actually know. Yeah, okay. Not a big baseball <laughs> fan, uh, but I do know Johan Santana and really enjoyed him when he was a player. Um, Great choice. My best friend when I was younger was a big Mets fan. When he played for the Mets, he was a fan of him. I remember him on the Twins, too, but my, my knowledge of baseball is only mid to early 2000s, um, so that's when I was a little bit more into baseball, so props for finding a baseball player that I actually I'm I was a fan. I have similar things. I have a lot of friends that are Mets fans, and, you know, Johan Santana was always the ace of the staff for a few years, right, within, within New York. Um, the risk of avoiding the, you know, just for the sake of avoiding the obvious and talking about Barry Peterson some more, I'm going to choose Marcel Darius because I actually think he's a really solid defensive tackle, good run stopper, really clogs at the middle of the field for the Bills. One of many great uh, Alabama defensive players. Absolutely. Quite a few of those. uh, And more to come this year as well. All right, let's quickly preview back to the sport you came here to listen to. Um, Northwestern has a couple of days off before they head to uh, what I assume is both of our favorite states, Parker, North Carolina, to take on the reigning national champion UNC Tar Heels uh, this Sunday in Chapel Hill. Um quick preview of that. Uh, Dude, UNC scores a lot. Yes, they average over 15 <laughs> goals a that's game. All, that's all I'm going to say. Yikes. I pulled up their schedule. I'm a little real scared right now. Um, you know, look at their schedule. They have a common opponent with Kinesius. Hmm. Uh, they beat them 16-8. to Northwestern beat them 9-7. to All right. But a uh, real interesting result. Uh, a team Northwestern is familiar with, the Maryland Terrapins, same hmm. conference. Maryland, the last few years, has gotten the better of Northwestern. Uh, the Tar Heels actually lost 13-10, to 10, you know. Um, I don't think Northwestern right now is as good as Maryland. I think at the end of the year, it's going to be a big test for them. If they're close, I'd say they're going to have to get close. Right now, they're not. But, you know, they're in the same ballpark. If they played Maryland, they could lose 13-10. Maybe they could win. <laughs> I don't but um, that shows Maybe. me that while North Carolina is really, really good, um, they, this is not an impossible game for the Wildcats. Very much in their atmosphere, in their ballpark. And if they play the way they did against UNC and Notre Dame, you know, they could win this game. If they play the way they did against Syracuse and Stony Brook, this could be an ugly blowout. It'd be a real test for the defense against a team, that, as we mentioned, scores over 15 a game and has a bunch of legitimate attacking options. They have five, sorry, six players with at least 16 points. Oh, man. All of those players have at least 10 goals. Molly Hendrick leads the team with 24 goals, 27 points. Ella Hazar has 15 assists. Sammy Joe Tracy is a name I remember from last year. She was one of the best 
draw control specialist in the country, top five for a lot of the year in that regard. She's got 62 draw controls on the year to go with 15 goals. Marie McCool is also a returner, has 22 points. So just a really solid, balanced offensive team, as we mentioned, that scores over 15 a game. Goaltending is pretty solid with Kaylee Waters, who I don't know very well. Goals against average south of 9.5. Save percentage almost 500, which is very good in the women's game. Um, so, you know, not much else to say about that besides, you know, going to be a really good test. I might be there. We'll see. Um, just to, to watch. I live near Chapel Hill. Um, North Carolina surprised me when they won the national championship last year. I'm going to be honest. They were, you know, top 10 team, top 6 team for a time. Maryland, I thought, had it. North Carolina, though. Came out of nowhere for the win. Uh, we'll see if they can repeat. Maryland-North Carolina matches a bit mentioned earlier. Uh, much ballyhooed match earlier on in the season. Maybe a big, big match. Two of the best teams in the country. Yeah. yeah. North Carolina preseason number one by virtue of being the national champions. Maryland are now number one, as they so often are. Probably aren't going to slip from that anytime soon. And North Carolina number two in both the uh, coaches and the lacrosse insiders polls. That's going to just about do it for us here for the debut 2017 lacrosse podcast. Y'all have any final thoughts? Go Cats. Go Cats is a fun team to follow. As Tim said at the beginning of this podcast, you know, historically one of the best teams at Northwestern. Uh, when you've got that type of pedigree, uh, every game matters. There's always a little subplot there. And uh, this is a team that responds well to pressure. So I'm, I'm excited to see how the rest of the season goes. Some big games coming up. As the rest of the sport grows nationwide, including out on the West Coast where it hadn't really existed until the last five or so years, it be interesting to see how the old guard that is Northwestern, five national championships in a row, seven in over the course of eight years in the last decade, it'll be interesting to see how they continue to respond to the growing interest of the sport nationwide. Thanks so much for listening to this, the first episode of the 2017 lacrosse podcast for Amit Malik and for Parker Johnson. My name's Tim Hackett. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. We'll recap UNC, a couple of other games that Northwestern has played since then at the halfway mark of the season. They're 3-4 right now. Looking to improve a little bit more. We'll see you next time. Have a good one.